The Brewers Association and Craft Beer Radio present this recording from Saver 2013 in New York City. This recording is from Saturday, June 15th. Barrel Aging, A Few Truths and a Few Tastes, featuring Dan Kopman from Schlafly Brewery and the St. Louis Brewery. Let me introduce myself. My name is Andy Sparhawk. I'm the Craft Beer Program Coordinator for the Brewers Association. The Brewers Association is happy to bring you Savor an American Craft Beer and Food Experience. Uh, thank you so much for coming, for sure. <laughs> awesome, uh, awesome opportunity, first time here in New York City. I have a couple of housekeeping uh, notes uh, to provide you. Um, first of all, uh, please please silence your phones uh, if you haven't already, just to, to make sure that these guys uh, don't get uh, uh, interrupted while, while they're talking on their, their amazing salon. Um, would like to thank our host distributor, Manhattan Beer Distributing, uh, for allowing us to put this together. Uh, it's so integral to have that sort of help, uh, especially in the first year event uh, in this area. Also, the salons are uh, sponsored by the Hopman uh, Brewery Apparel as well. Um, I would like to let you know that this salon will be recorded for Craft Beer Radio. Uh, so if you guys have questions, and you certainly will, uh, please let, uh, let me get to you with a microphone or encourage these guys to repeat your question uh, as you do that. Um, but without further ado, I'd like to introduce Dan Kotman of Schlafly Brewing Company. Um, Got a quick bio on, on Dan, if, if you will. Uh, raised in St. Louis, Dan Kopman has a degree in economics from Kenyon College and a master's of science in policy studies from Edinburgh University. He worked for Scottish Brewers in Edinburgh, Young's Brewery in London, and the National Health Service in Scot Scotland. He is the co-founder and CEO of Schlafly Beer, founded in 1991. Tom Schlafly and Dan, Dan Kopman opened the Schlafly Tap Room and launched Schlafly Beer in an abandoned building in downtown St. Louis. For 20 years, they have been providing their beloved city with a wide variety of classic beer styles. The once vacant, deteriorating building is now a celebrated brewery and restaurant housing a strong local craft beer and local food community. In 2003, Schlafly Beer opened the Bottleworks Brewery, Restaurant and Garden. The brewery now produces 50,000 barrels of beer annually, or almost 700,000 cases of beer, 80% of which is sold in, St. Louis, in the St. Louis metropolitan area. Schlafly is now em employs a total of 170 people, 50 of which are in the breweries. In 2011, Dan was honored by the Brewers Association with the FX Max Defense of the Industry Award for his leadership role in the craft brewing industry and his work to promote federal excise tax reform for small brewers. He lives in St. Louis with his wife and author, Sheena Cook. Please join me in welcoming, welcoming Dan Kopman. Well, thanks very much. Um, to my right is Matt Murphy. Matt uh, works, has worked for the brewery for over 10 years, um, both at the tap room, Schlafly Tap Room and at Bottleworks. Uh, Matt is a senior lab technician in our lab, so Matt does a lot of the quality-related work um, around our barrel aging program, so he's joined us um, as well. Um, what we're going to try and do is, uh, we're going to grab a bottle of this beer as well, which would be, which would be good. Thanks. 
Um, oh, no, no. Hold on to that one. We'll get one. Got to have our own, you know? Um, and what we're going to try and do this, this evening is, you know, you'll have a chance to taste these beers, and we'll talk about what's behind each, each of the beers in our barrel aging program. With an objective on two parts. There's an art to this, and then there's a science to this. And one of the problems as you grow as a brewer and you add scientific staff to your team is that, you know, there are two types of breweries. They're, they're, it's been described this way all my life in the brewing industry, 30 years. There are two types of breweries. There are breweries that, um, that, breweries that have an infection and breweries that know they have an infection. Okay? And so, you know, we're, we're operating in a non-pasteurized environment at the moment. And so a lot of the work that, that small breweries do is by taste. You know, initially, when you're very small, you might not have the resources to know what's going on in your beer. And as you add those resources, unfortunately, then you know what's in your beer. And that, that brings with it a burden, essentially. And so there's... You, what we're going to do, essentially, you're going to taste some beers tonight that are clean, and you will taste some beers tonight that are not clean. And we're going to talk a little bit about how we cope with that and, um, and, and how, we, how we sort of make decisions about how we're going to package different beers. Um, one of the advantages of being in St. Louis, um, from a barrel aging standpoint, is that in the wine and, 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 and whiskey industries in the United States, almost all the barrels that are made, they talk about American oak, American oak barrels. That's Missouri oak barrels. So the largest cooperage in the world is about two and a half hours from our brewery. They're a company called T.D. Boswell & Sons um, or um, World Cooperage. They make 90-plus percent of the world's spirit barrels, all of which start as bourbon barrels. And then they make probably about half the wine barrels um, in the world. And so it's an amazing company. And we've had really great communication and partnership to a certain extent with them over the years. So we've learned a lot. So the first beer that you're trying is Oak Age Barley Wine. And the idea behind this beer is to take... An Amer really an American barley wine, not a traditional English... A traditional English barley wine, when I worked for Young's in London, we made a beer called Old Nick Barley Wine, which was about 6% alcohol by volume. And that is, the, that is a sort of traditional um, English barley wine. Now, a 6% ABV beer in the United States would be considered, you know, oh, that's a session beer, you know. I mean, in England, that's a, that's, a, that's a very strong beer. And again, because in Europe, beer is taxed on the alcohol content. Whereas in the United States, we're just taxed on the gallonage. One of the reasons that you get the, the beers of the strength you see now in the United States is because beers in the United States are not taxed on the alcohol content. That's a whole separate other subject and, and, a, and a quite boring one. Um, but essentially, um, this beer goes in at about 10% um, alcohol. And I'll let Matt talk in a second about you know, the actual what goes into this beer, how we make this beer. But the objective here is to age this beer, then we make the barley wine, it ferments, stays in stainless for about two to three months, 
Um, we could probably move it through the stainless tank quicker than that. The fermentation's not going to take that long unless we're having a problem and we just have a sluggish fermentation. Then we move, we do two things with the beer. We'll move it into new oak barrels and we've done different trials with new oak barrels. So different levels of toast, toasting on a barrel. So an untoasted barrel, um, a light to medium toast, a heavy toast and a heavy plus toast. So we'll, we'll test the beer in, in all that. Then we usually will take those barrels, we'll blend them all back together again. The other way we do is we'll, we'll move the beer from one the tank that it's fermenting into another tank that's full of oak chips. And that's how most of the oaking is done now in the wine industry. It's not being done in barrels. The advantage of aging beer in a barrel, um, you know, from, or wine, the reason they want to age wine in a barrel is not just the oak character, but it would be the oxidation that's going on as, as the wine's aging. Okay? So... Um, essentially, you know, this is a pretty straightforward barley wine. So we're not trying to sort of create the finished product essentially just through that. It's the oak aging that then we're trying to add a lot of character to it. In front of you, you've got some pairings that we've done. So with the barley wine, there's a coconut cookie here. And then there's some dried fruits. And we just thought that would be kind of nice. All right. So as you're drinking this, you can... You can um, Nibble on that. And I'll let Matt talk a little bit about what goes in the beer and, and what he found as he tested this beer. <laughs> so, <clears throat> um, as Dan mentioned, we do a couple different processes with the barley wine, depending on what the, what the plan is. And, and <clears throat> we don't do a large volume in the barrels, but it's allowed us to do some experimentation. Um, <clears throat> one, of the nice, one of the reasons we, we chose the, the pairing we did with the fruits and uh, coconut is it kind of there, some of those flavors you get from those, uh, from those items kind of resemble some of the flavors you actually get from barrel aging of beer. So one of the, um, one of the barrels have traditionally have been used for, you know, oh, I don't even know exactly when the, when the first barrels were used. I think the, they think the Gauls started using them way back when. It was all earthenware before that. But um, it's, obviously it's round. It's easy to move around. They make great vessels for holding anything from nails to beer to, to what have you. So... Um, but one of the side effects, though, is that you've got this uh, beer, uh, the wood itself is porous to a certain degree, so you've got this slow oxidation process happening. And so the oxidation process, you know, creates uh, a more rounded character and also can create some of these kind of uh, uh, fruitier notes and things like that, so things that aren't necessarily there in the beer to start with. You get some of these um, kind of, a ra- you know, some of the, uh, the raisiny notes, things like that. So dried fruits are often a common uh, descriptive term when you're talking about barrel-aged beers. Um, another thing uh, with the wood is that one of the signature, and especially this is especially true of American oak, um, it, but most people are probably familiar, but the, generally the, the two oaks that are used in the world are French and American oak. Um, there's some um, oak that's used from uh, Moravia, I think, and some other places, but in general those are the, the two main sources. And uh, American oak has been used uh, as highlighted very early as having some unique characteristics, one of which is a high concentration of what's called whiskey lactone. It's a, kind of a coconut note, and that's what makes uh, bourbon bourbon, really, is that, is that coconut note. So when you're aging beer in new, in, uh, new oak or if you're aging on chips, which you're, you're getting some of that lactone out of there, so hence the, the coconut with it. So, um, But going back to the, to the process, we've been able to use those barrels and aging in the barrels themselves to test out those different levels, and it allows us, so we've, got, we've changed the ch- type of chips we used over time 
to uh, more you know different toasting levels and things like that, and allows us to to um, kind of tweak the flavors and get different ones out. Um, we've done uh, some barrels where we've done refills of barrels and tried that out and found that uh, you know there's there's a kind of a uh, depending on what you want to do, if you want to, if you want to really get that wood character, you want young, you know, new barrels and age it for two months, if that, you know. If you want to go longer than that, which some people do, it's uh, at that point you can might, might as well use reuse barrels and things like that, because you're basically all those new, those young extractive characters are gone, and so you might as well. And so what happens later in the process, they'll actually uh, diffuse, and so if you age the beer too long in the barrels, you lose that that nice woody character. So if you're going to do you know long long term aging, it's better to use you know second age, second uh, fill barrels. Um, but of course, one of the things with uh, uh, barrels is there's a, a micro aspect that we have to keep an eye on. And so one of the things we do is to uh, sample the barrels directly for uh, check for micro um, issues, mostly lactobacillus things like that. Um, and uh, just trying to think, especially with the barley wine, it's it's been a, a it's been a neat beer. It's like I said, it's it's a mix of aged in oak and on oak. As it were, but it's not—it's—it's um, it's not as obviously aggressive as a spirit barrel and things like that, where you're getting a lot more of those different different notes. But this kind of just takes on some of that that rounded oxidation uh, and some of the whiskey and some of that lactone character. This beer is two-row malted barley, um, crystal malt, um, and then we use um, quite a bit of malt extract to boost the gravity because we can't hold enough grain on its own in the mash tun itself. So we boost the gravity. So we're getting to about 24, 25 Play-Doh. Um, we're, we're aiming for about 10% ABV. And the yeast strain we use in this beer will pretty much give up the ghost at about 10, 11%. One of the things you'll, there's a couple things, you know, a couple, thing, couple comments about barrel aging in general and about higher alcohol beers that you might taste here tonight or you know, throughout the whole event. Or the, and definitely that you taste in the United States compared to if you were to try stronger beers in Europe. And again, the strength of those beers tends to be less, again, because of the, of the structure of the, of the industry. But the first comment I'd make is, as brewers, we spent the better part of, you know, a thousand years trying to figure out how to get bacteria and wild yeast out of beer. Okay. So when I started at Young's, all the barrels we filled were wooden barrels um, that went to the pubs. We constantly fought lactic acid bacteria, pediococcus, and wild yeast. So the small lab we had there was constantly showing up these infections. Now, you might not taste the beers, taste those infections in the beer, because the alcohol would protect the beer a little bit, or time, just time. There just wasn't enough time. The beer was fresh enough that at no point was there enough secondary fermentation with bacteria or wild yeast to be able to notice that flavor. But essentially, I remember this whole long discussion about the tradition of, of, of cask-conditioned beer in the wood and should we move to stainless casks. And we ended up spending millions of pounds to convert from wooden casks to stainless casks. And so now I come forward 20 years later, and we're sticking beer back in wood. <clears throat> you know, it's kind of like, why the fuck are we doing this? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, and honestly, it's, it's sort of think, of, think of a barrel this way. You know, it's full of, it's porous. So no matter how much steam or sulfur you might throw at that barrel, 
you're not going to clean that barrel completely. You're never going to be 100% sure that you're dealing with a barrel that's free of an unwanted bacteria or wild yeast. So that's the first thing I would say about barrel aging. And I'd come back again to this whole issue of, you know, what are we trying to produce? Are we trying, now, now this beer, I, I'm, and you can taste it, there are very little sour notes in this beer, and, and Matt will know that this particular bottling was free of any, any bacteria. So we, you know, we didn't do this at the beginning because we were a smaller brewer, but now we plate the beer when it's in fermenter. We then sample, we don't, a lot, when we first started this, we would take all the beer out of every barrel, put it into a tank before packaging, and we would test the tank. And we thought, oh, well, we'll just test the tank. Well, all you need, if, and if that tank has got 38, 52-gallon or 55-gallon barrels making up that batch of beer, all we needed was one. All we needed was an infection in one barrel, and we've infected the entire batch. Now, does that mean that the batch has to be destroyed? No, there's two things we could do. We could bottle it and see what happens. You'll taste a beer later where we bottled it. Let's see what happens. Um, or we could keg that batch of beer. Because when you keg it, you're going to go through it a lot faster. And you're going to keep it cold. And that will limit the potential for wild yeast growth or bacteria. Bacteria were not horribly concerned with from a liability standpoint, just to talk to you as a, you know, as a brewer, because that's just going to sour the beer. But if you talk to, you know, we have a, an ex-fermentation scientist from Anheuser-Busch in St. Louis that left in the takeover of everything, and, and, you know, he's around a lot. And he just scratches his head. He says, I do not know why any brewer would put a barrel-aged beer in a bottle. Because the other problem is, is if you have wild yeast in that bottle, you could get a secondary fermentation that produces so much CO2 that you're going to go poof. <laughs> right. And, you know, sometimes one might go, oh, well, the bottle just broke. Oh, well, then, you know, there's the lie. We're in America here. You know, I've got a family full of lawyers, you know. I <laughs> and, you know, as long as it's not a billable hour, it's fine. But, you know, in that case, you know, then they'd probably say, you know, if we had something like that, they'd say, well, I don't know how to do that kind of law. You need to hire somebody else, you know. So, so it's one of these things. So, yeah, let's, we'll get the next beer going. So, again, that's the first thing is that this is not in any way, barrel aging beer is not a perfect science. We'll talk in a little bit about how you could ensure the quality so that when the beer comes out of barrel and you've tasted that barrel, you could say, okay, I like the flavor of that, I wanna maintain that flavor. There are, there are ways of doing that. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about that. So again, any questions about this, this beer? Barrel aged barley wine? It's a very sweet beer when it comes out of fermenter compared to what it ends up like now in the glass. Any questions? Yeah. Uh, the, the question was how often do we find infections? And um, uh, too often is the, is the easy answer. Um, but we, we've, we've uh, in some, you know, we've um, run into uh, some comments from people where, you know, I work in the lab and so that's our, 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 pro our process, what we do is we go looking for problems. So we're not always the most liked people in the, in the building. Um, and we're often told to stop looking. But it's, uh, 
but that's that's not the world. You know, that's not how we that's not how we do things. And um, so, well, we've actually we did get burned once with um, for a number of years. Uh, we we were just doing you know blending batches together and then testing it and then packaging and then testing the bottles. And uh, we got burned once uh, on a batch of beer. And since then, we've uh, started checking individual barrels directly, which poses a certain amount of risk because you do have to open the barrel up to get at it. But it's um, and I've talked with some other brewers who are doing the similar process, and it's you know. It's a calculated risk, um, but and that allows us to segregate out any barrels. So we're able to check, and so we'll have you know thirty barrels, and one or two will be start growing something. So we'll leave those aside and blend the rest, and then check that blend, and then again in package. Um, so it's been we've been fortunate uh, most of the time. We've been pretty good. We had a batch recently where uh, it we've kind of sorted down to being one bad barrel, and then there was a a problem with the filling of the barrels, and so ended up being. We think it was just one barrel and basically got transferred to the other barrels while they were filling. And so we actually had all, basically all the barrels came up positive. And so that was, that was a rather sad event. Um, but, you know, but like, as Dan said, we're able to do is most of this beer, if it, something like that happens, we're not talking large volume. We're talking, you know, 40, 50 barrels uh, total in liquid barrels. Um, so it's, you know, 20 to 30 uh, in the end. So somewhere in that range. So we actually a lot of it, we will keg and just keep it in-house so we can kind of keep an eye on it. And we go th- we've had two restaurants and allow us to move through that beer fairly quickly, so it's not, not going to waste. Um, but obviously it's... And there's a good chance that some of these things will never turn into anything. I mean, these, bear, these beers are big beers. There's um, a lot of alcohol, and, um, which helps. Oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, a lot of alcohol, so that helps kind of repress things. And there's a certain amount of hops that will help with that. Um, so we've been... You know, we see less and occasionally, but you know, we don't want to see anything, but at least we know so early enough in the process to... To do that, and um, and more, and talking to other brewers, more and more brewers are doing this because it's becoming an issue, and, and the techniques and tools aren't all that you know. You don't need a whole lot to be able to do this. So, um, sir, yeah, hello. Well, it's a really good question because we don't have the pasteurizer yet. And here, here, so here's the, the basic fundamental issue that we're coming, coming to. So, so we've had batches in bottle, and, you, and again, you'll taste one, that are clean, and we've had batches in bottle that are sour, that, goes, that, that produce a certain sourness. And the craziness of it is you'll do a tasting, and we'll do one tonight, and the beer you might love the most tonight is the one that's sour. But that's not what we intended the beer to make in the first place. So the question is, for us, what, you know, what are we trying to do? Are we trying to produce something that is unpredictable? Okay. And if it's, un- if it's unpredictable, as long as Matt and, and that team doesn't, they don't find wild yeast, that beer can go forward. But if all the, I remember another brewer recently had a recall of a batch of imperial stout that had, that had um, wild yeast in it. And they tried to recall it, and they couldn't get, because once they announced the recall, it all got bought. <laughs> okay? So they're out there trying to get this beer back because they're worried about the liability of bottles going boom with wild yeast, even though I think they were probably pretty good. 
You know, but you never know, especially if these bottles are going to be stored in warm condition. You could build up a lot of CO2. We buy a relatively heavy bottle for that reason alone. We wouldn't, there's a, a thinner bottle we could buy, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't hold the same amount of CO2. So we do that, as a, as, quite honestly, as a precaution, but we also know. So we could take, I mean, we had this discussion this week. Okay, batch of beer, micropositive lactic acid producer bacteria. Should we just bottle it? You know, you talk to some of our team, and they're like, bottle it, it'll be really cool, you know. <laughs> but then you have the folks in the lab that are like black and white. You know, no, of course not. That's not what we intended the beer to taste like. So where we're sitting right now is, and, you, and, and we don't, you can't take, there's no sourness in the beer. The beer tastes absolutely wonderful right now. But what we're doing is we're kegging the beer. Now, what I would say about, there's been a lot of negativity about pasteurization. And what I will say at this point is there are more pasteurizers out there than people know about. There are some very, very well-known small brewers, meaning non-AB Miller Coors brewers, that run all their beer through a, pasture, a flash pasteurizer. I mean, at Young's, we ran all our bottled and keg beer through a flash pasteurizer. Now, we didn't have cold storage. So, but, you know, I don't see too many back rooms at Walmart with a beer, the beer in the cooler. So, as we start to ship beer further afield and beer is going to be on shelves longer, the question is, how can you confidently produce shelf-stable beer that people can count on to taste the way that tasted when they bought it the first time? Or do you not care in a beer like this? Do we not care if it goes sour? Could we put that information on the website? Batch XYZ is a sour imperial stout. Enjoy. I, you know, there, I don't know if there is a, a, a perfect answer. So what we're doing right now is we're kegging those beers. But... You know, the bid for the flash pasteurizer, a batch flash pasteurizer, is on my desk, and I plan to place that order. Because one of the problems we're having is we, we're out of Imperial Stout right now. So everybody's saying, I want, you know, 2013 Schlafly Imperial Stout in a bottle. I can ship you a bunch of kegs. I've got plenty of kegs, but I don't have any in bottle right now. So the question is, how do we... As we grow, and, and we used to produce 60 barrels a year, now we're trying to produce 180 barrels a year, 240 barrels a year. So of these beers, in, a, in what is our original brewery, it's very small. So in order to be able to get this out, now with that batch pasteurizer, we will be able to take a batch that is micropositive, flash pasteurize it, flash pasteurization is different to tunnel pasteurization, again it's a flash. There are many debates about whether flash pasteurization, you know, in a triangle test, could you taste the difference between a, pasture, a flash pasteurized, non you know, and a non-pasteurized beer? Most, you know, as long as you're operating the piece of kit properly, and a batch pasteurizer, what I mean by that, so when I ran the bottling line at Young's, it had a flash pasteurizer on it, but it, it was in line. So the beer went through the pasteurizer, and when the bottling, when the filler would shut down, which it did all the time, because the filler, like, you know, the labeler broke, shut the filler down. Then the beer starts recirculating and cooking on the pasteurizer. So that's not very good for the beer. And so we didn't have a surge tank, meaning be able to clear the pasteurizer. So with a, ba with a batch pasteurizer, we'll be just going from tank to tank. And then we'll bottle the beer after that. So it's a much simpler process. And the idea is to 
to be able to have that as a as a piece of the toolkit and not necessarily use it unless we feel we want to use it. We may end up having a beer that is lacto-positive and we'll just let it go because we decide to let it go. But if we have that option, then we can make that decision. Does that help? Okay. But, <laughs> but I, I think it's important. I think, I think one of the things I think, you know, and some of you may know I'm a big proponent of transparency in labeling and how breweries operate. And I think both within the big, you know, we, 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 we're often very critical of our big brewery brethren about their lack of transparency. But I think if we're going to hold them to that standard and say, you know, you should label Shock Top as coming from Anheuser Bush, you should label Blue Moon as Miller Coors, then if we're doing things, we should also be as transparent. We can't hold others to a standard that we're un unwilling to hold ourselves to. So um, let's move on pretty quickly. Bourbon barrel aged Imperial Stout, um, a strong Imperial Stout. Uh, again, about 25, 26 Play-Doh. The target is about 11% ABV before it goes into barrel. Barrel aging, or let's talk about spirit barrel aging a little bit. So we talked about new American oak barrels, and it's, it's fascinating. That I think you can see there's probably YouTube videos out. World Cooperage is a pretty... Uh, no, fo no photography allowed. It's like something out of a Dickens novel. Um, <laughs> But the way they produce Smoking wine fire. barrels is very technical. It's all about heat and time over this fire, and they're rolling barrels. And whereas spirit barrels, it's like just this ring of fire because it's all number one char. It's, and the, the finish on the outside of a spirit barrel is nowhere near the quality of finish you see on a wine barrel. So they're, they're very different. All bourbon has to be produced in a new number one char American oak barrel, okay? It is the only spirit in the world that needs to be, by law, go into a new barrel, okay? So think about it this way, because you're going to taste a beer in a little bit where that barrel started out as an oak tree in Missouri, got made into a barrel at World Cooperage, went to Kentucky to then be used once, and bourbon barrels can only be used once, okay? So it's a one-time fill. But every other spirit in the world that is aged in a barrel is essentially then aged in a bourbon barrel. Okay? So we'll get into the travels of the bourbon barrels in a second. But these barrels come from a, a small distillery in uh, Bardstown, Kentucky called Willet. Um, and um, sort of we've known this family for a little while. And basically a strong, a strong you know, imperial stout, strong stout. Um, we're about two months again in stainless to finish the fermentation, and then we're anywhere from three months to three, four months in barrel. Um, and we find, we've tested, you know, one month, two months, up to 12 months. And in terms of extracting the flavors and the spirit out of that spirit barrel, um, oh, I'll let Matt give you his feel on that. Um, but that's, uh, so we'll, I'll turn it over here. <clears throat> um, yeah, oh, I've got this one. Oh, Thanks. Right. Yeah, no, it, the, the, after, a few, after a couple months, it's, it's really you've gotten everything out of the barrel that you're going to get out of the barrel. So, it, um, so there isn't a whole lot of need to age it longer. Um, uh, but again, it depends. I mean, if you're looking for, because in this case, we're using spirit barrel to basically to pull in that, that, that bourbon character. And so we're not as uh, uh, 
um, focus as you might be on getting some of that oxidation and things like that. So if we leave it in the barrel longer, you get more of that oxidation, you get uh, some of that, that slow aging of the beer. So that will also create another, another dynamic on there. And I guess a quick note on just the order we chose for the, um, for the samples. Um, I guess one way to look at this is we started with the, uh, the barley wine, uh, moving to the Imperial Stout, then the um, Scottish Ale, and then finally with the, the Hop Toddy. And the first three basically is kind of the three, I guess, three faces of barrels. So the first one is, um, is basically you're getting, the barley wine's taking the flavor of the oak itself. So we're talking, you know, so that's really the kind of the first stage. The second one here with the um, uh, Imperial Stout is a new barrel. It's been charred, it's had uh, bourbon in it. So then we're getting basically, you know, first use spirit uh, into that beer. And the third one is the Scottish Ale, which is going to be, a second use, so it's it's been it's spent you know anywhere from four to twelve years in Kentucky, and then went on to Scotland and spent you know another maybe ten twelve years in Scotland, and then came back to the United States. So it's it's older than a number of our brewers probably, um, <clears throat> yeah, that we used in that one. So, but it's kind of different different phases of, of barrels in production. And all these every step of this process, you get different character out of you get different flavors, different um, uh, effects on the beer. Um, and with the um, <clears throat> again with uh, with any of these barrels, we're you know we're, we're sampling everything directly from micro and checking and making sure everything's clean the way we want it to be. Um, and with the uh, but we've done these these taste tests, and for us, we really wanted to just get that bourbon character out of it, and we're done. And then we dispose of the barrels, and they'll go off to um, either uh, some home brewers use them, um, go to gardeners, places like that. So, so they're, they're seeing another another life after us too. So, um, <clears throat> but yeah, we want to kind of just like I said, the three different you know different types of. Um, uh, ways of using the wood, right. as it were. So, and again, when, we're, when you're thinking about pairing beers, so when we were talking about pairing the barley wine, you have that coconut character that comes out of the wood, so we use the coconut cookies and the, and the fruit. The fruit is really the oxidation, so you're getting those raisiny plum characteristics. Mm-hmm. As the beer ages in bottle, it's going to pick up those characteristics. With the Imperial Stout, obviously, you've got a lot of roasted barley, so you've got that chocolate character. And then that sort of sweet, salty thing going on with bourbon. And so that's why I'm a big fan of these Trader Joe's salty, sweet, chocolate-covered <laughs> almonds. And uh, Matt's a... He, well, Troy, who's downstairs pouring, wanted to buy the uh, chocolate-covered coffee beans. So we bought those, too. So, you know, <laughs> essentially... They're delicious. Anything that's chocolate, and again, sweet and salty, I think, with bourbon... Are, are the real there's both sweet and salty characteristics to bourbon so that's what we were focused on you know pairing there so any questions about imperial stout I know we're on to a beer that I'm going to talk about here in a second but any yep uh, so um, I would say later this year um, we will be We'll be releasing more Imperial Stout and Bottle. Um, we're going to have some events. Uh, do you live here in the, on the East Coast? Or? So we'll have some events um, probably over the next few months with some of the kegs of Imperial Stout um, because we've, we've taken an entire batch and a half and decided to keg it. Um, and Yes. Yeah. So uh, there's a lot... You know, there's some, it, it's one of these things where we had... Uh, demand for kegs and demand for bottles and in this case we decided to keg it so that's kind of the plan um, in the short term but uh, so that's you know 
the other thing I'll say, just how we make these beers, one of the things we do, so this is done in a 15-barrel brew house and a 60-barrel fermenter. So one of the ways we boost gravity in doing this is we take the last runnings, we take the weaker wort that comes off batches one um, through three, essentially. So batch one, we match in with hot water, mash in with hot water. We take the last runnings that are too weak to go into the beer itself, because otherwise then we'd have a problem, you know, we'd be under gravity. We take the last runnings, we put those in a tank, and we mash in with that last runnings as the foundation water. So one of the things you can do for home brewers or that other breweries might be doing, because we have this multiple batch in the brew house, we're able to use that weaker wort, and that helps us really boost the gravity. All right? Okay, the next beer is a little bit of a crazy thing. Okay, so this beer was produced last year, 2012, for our 21st anniversary. And my wife is from a, f- a farm in Aberdeenshire. So uh, look, at the, look at the United Kingdom, go to the far right-hand top corner, and that's uh, Aberdeenshire, where uh, Donald Trump has ruined this perfectly great beach with a golf course. <laughs> um, but now he's about to, he's, he's, he's in a battle with the Scottish government because they're about to put a wind farm out in the ocean, and he's all pissed off about that. So we're pretty excited about him being all pissed off about that. So um, my brother-in-law now, my father-in-law passed away a few years ago, but every time I would go back to visit with family, the, you know, the, the flight arrives in the morning and we'd get to the farm after a long drive and you're all jet-lagged and you're all exhausted, and, but he, he insisted that we sit down with a bottle of scotch whiskey and essentially drink the bottle. <laughs> and no one was going to sleep until this, because they grow malting barley for the scotch whiskey industry. So he had this entire cupboard full of bottles of whiskey that he'd get from different distillers that he supplies um, barley to. So I had this memory in my head of drinking, and I like to drink scotch whiskey with a little bit of water. I think it brings out the flavor, it mellows it out a little bit, and I'm a big, big fan of a little bit of, of sort of tap water, just plain old tap water um, mixed, with, uh, mixed with my scotch. So this is what's going on in my head. And my brother-in-law had been bothering me for years you know, in a, and I, I will not, I'm smart enough not to try and do this accent. So he, he would bother me for years to say, when are you going to essentially use some of my fucking barley in your beer? I want you, you know, and, but, you know, we're talking about high carbon footprint beer here. I mean, if we're going to take barley off a field in Scotland and bring it all the way some, you know, to the United States, I mean, you know, it's like a little so. So, <laughs> so I don't know where this idea came from, but I thought, well, I, re- you know, we don't, I'm not a distiller, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time with distillers, but we don't own a still. But the, 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 the thought crossed my mind, can I make scotch and water without a still? Because essentially, a distiller in Scotland is making a wash of essentially a golden Scottish ale using this barley. So we took 20 tons of barley off the farm in northeast, we trucked it down to the south of England, where there's a maltster that could do that very small batch size. We malted it um, as a very, sort of almost like a, what they call in Britain a lager malt, a v- something that would produce a very light-colored beer. We then bagged it and shipped it over, you know, shipped it all the way to St. Louis. It's not like, you know, we're on the East Coast. You know, we're like, we're downhill from the Appalachians and we're <laughs> downhill from the Rockies. So has anybody been to St. Louis? 
Right, so you're, you know, you know we're, we're basically the swamp at the bottom of, you know. <laughs> you know, we've got, you know, we don't have the mountains, we don't have the ocean. You know, we don't have, you know, we schlepped it. We, we schlepped it. And then, so we said, okay, we're going to use, how are we going to use all this barley? And so then we had this, I had a way of doing this, but a, f- a friend of mine who used to work at Young's, who now works um, for Fuller's, he hooked me up. <laughs> it's like a hookup, you know. It's like so he hooked me up with this a guy at Morrison Bowmore. They own the distillery ten miles from the farm, called Glengarry Distillery. So I phoned the distillery and said, "Can I buy forty-eight second fill Glengarry barrels from you?" And I could see him at the other end of the phone, you know, because I'm phoning him. He's like, "Who is this stupid fucking American?" On I mean, this stupid American. <laughs> Asking me, you know, because here's the thing about the Scots. I mean, Scott, as you know, as many of you know, Scots are cheaper than cheap, okay? They don't like pulling out their wallets for anything. And second fill barrels are, meaning, so the first, so what happens with the majority of all the bourbon barrels, there's a couple of, some of them are tied in with Diageo and some of the big spirits companies, but there are a couple barrel dealers in Bardstown. And they sort of work with the distillers. But most of the bourbon barrels go two directions. They go to Juarez for tequila, or they go to Scotland. And they used to break them down into staves and, and heads and then rebuild them. And these days now, they just load them on a container, and they just ship them. And so then they, these get filled with Scotch whiskey, but the Scots are cheap. So they fill them three times. They'll use a bourbon barrel up to three times. But I didn't want one of these mangy third-fill barrels. So I said to Willie, you know, Willie in Glasgow, I said, Willie. <laughs> and he used to work, so the company's Morrison Bowmore. They own Glengarry. They're part of Suntory. I mean, the whole Scotch whiskey industry is owned by big, big spirits, Diageo, Pernod Ricard, Suntory. And so they have a distillery on Isla called Bowmore, and then they've got this, this little Glengarry distillery at the back ass of Aberdeenshire. And so, um, uh, so Willie said, I said, I want 48 second fill barrels. And he said, no, nah, I'm not doing that. And then I said, I am the son-in-law of Lindsay Cook. I didn't know if he would have a clue who my father-in-law the farmer was. And he's like, oh, Lindsay. And, and so I got lucky, and he said, you know, yes. Okay, so we shipped the barrels down to England to get consolidated with a container full of hops that we were bringing over, brought them to St. Louis. We made this very strong golden ale. It was, it was one, so it's single malt. It's all optic is the variety off the farm. Malted in the south of England. It was all optic. We used French hops, um, uh, two varieties, Aramis and Strissel, but in really small quantities. The whole idea, we did not want any hop character in this beer. And we weren't going to use English hops because it's a Scottish beer, so we had to use French hops. Because we wouldn't... You, you would not use English hops in a Scottish beer because, you know, that's giving the English money and you obviously would never do that. So... Um, how am I doing? Am I doing all right? Uh, we're almost there. We're almost there. Okay, so... Um, and we got one more beer to drink. So, essentially, we made the beer. It was a, it was a very sweet... Um, strong golden ale and then we aged it for six months in these barrels and when we opened the barrels and poured it out and it was uncarbonated at that point I was like 
fucking hell, this is scotch and water. <laughs> so there's nothing, you know, and, and what this is a lesson to, to me as a, brew, uh, you know, as a, as a sort of unscientifically trained brewer is, wow, you can take one ingredient, one, one variety of malted barley, one, you know, you don't have to f- shove 25 malts and 18 hops and four yeast strains and peanut butter and your Bob's uncle <laughs> toenail. <laughs> You know, you don't need to do this to make a pretty amazing beer. And the whole objective was, all I want to do is make scotch and water. And we made scotch and water. (laughs) The other good thing is it's clean. (laughs) So, and and we paired this, so I couldn't resist when we were in Trader Joe's. We have a little bit of, um, hopefully you figured this out. This is salmon jerky. So, um, I will raise my glass to my father-in-law, who's somewhere in a better place, and, uh, and my brother-in-law. Um, we finally made beer with his barley, so, to Lindsay Cook. And I think we also had some uh, smoked uh, almonds. Mm-hmm. I'm an almond freak, so. All right, last beer. Quickly. Which is kind of the um, throw everything at the wall and see what sticks kind yeah. of beer. All so. Right, so. <laughs> so for our 20th anniversary, what we did was we took generations of brewers and we let each generation, there were four we figured in the life of our brewery, sorry. Oops, yeah, sorry, sorry. <laughs> there were four generations essentially. And this... Uh, Myself and the two original brewers made the first beer. And I think, what was that? Was it like a big Pilsner? Uh, Imperial Pilsner. Right, because our first brewer was a guy named Dave Miller. Um, He wrote some homebrewing books, and all he wanted to ever make was Pils, which was great. So in homage to Dave, we made a big, strong Pilsner. Our second um, generation of brewers, a woman named Sarah Hale, and a guy named uh, James Ottolini, who's now our head of brewing operations, um, were a, a much more creative bunch. So they decided they wanted to make a beer that would mimic a hot toddy. Okay? So think about a hot toddy. So what they did was they made a beer that was part, part honey in the mash and part malted barley, fermented it out. They used uh, citra, which is a fairly lemony hop, um, you know, uh, basically a big citrusy hop. They used that in the beer. Then they went and added lemon juice to it um, after it fermented, and then they aged it in a bourbon barrel. Okay? So when we had this at Saver about four years ago, I totally lost my voice explaining this beer. <laughs> so it's part mead, part beer, lemon juice, you know, and the whole nine yards. And, and uh, But it was... Um, this is the first time I've tried it. But when we... When Matt plated this in the, when they plated it in the, um, in the lab, and this will often happen in breweries, when you plate beer during fermentation and it comes up clean, you think, we're set. And then all of a sudden, you plate it later, and all of a sudden you find these bugs. So this is the first time I've tried this beer in a long time, so let's just... There is a lot going on. In- There's a lot going on in this beer, so... <laughs> This was made in, 
When was this man? He was in the barrels for a while, so it would have been... This is probably 2011. 2011? Yeah. Our 20th anniversary, so two, yeah, 2011. Mm-hmm. And um, it's not as sour as I thought it would be. No. It's definitely, it gets some of the aroma more than anything else, but the, the lemons dropped out, the things like that, and the bourbon was never, wasn't all that strong, but there's definitely a presence of that, a little bit of, that it, sort of some sharp, extra acidity. That, yeah. That sort of sharpness and extra acidity, that's finally the lactic acid bacteria sort of taking over the beer. And it's kind of nuked the aroma as well, so. Wow. What do you, any thoughts on that? <laughs> Tasty. Tasty. Good. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, oh, I mean, I could stand up and say, hey, we wanted to make a sour hop toddy beer. And, um, and I think we decided that it was time. With this, we uh, have provided you with a ginger cookie and a lemon head. Or a, <laughs> a, a, a Walgreens pseudo lemon head. <laughs> they call them lemon uh, saucers or something. So. Any last questions? But, I know we need to wrap it up, but any last questions? Yes. This goes back more to a brewing process. You're doing these brews around 25 Play-Doh. Yeah. How are you managing aeration? And I'm especially curious if you change your aeration because you're using barrels that are slightly porous. Especially considering you're, you're really doing your primary fermentation for two months of steel. Right. Uh, it's we we do up the aeration. Um, we've got a, a we're able to. We check, we check the wort, basically, the dissolved oxygen levels. So we basically crank it all the way up for these big beers. And then um, we don't really change it uh, too much. I mean, traditionally, you know, if you're going to make a, a slightly less, um, I guess, a beer that's not quite, quite as strong, we definitely wouldn't want to um, uh, run the aeration the way we do because then you end up, what you end up doing is pre-aging your beer because you've got all this oxygen in the beer. Yeast is going to take up so much, but not everything. And then you've got this oxygen reacting with your beer. So basically, you're aging your beer right off the bat. So um, so that over oxygenation can be a big issue if you're not if it's not under control. Um, in this case, we're more looking at uh, more concerned about making sure there's enough healthy yeast. So all that oxygen provides yeast with the the building blocks to build more yeast. You know, keep growing new, new yeast. So we want to really hit it with a lot of oxygen. Um, and then. Again, like you said, I mean, we're aging this in barrels, so we're kind of looking for some of that oxidation, so we're not quite as concerned about it at that point. Um, there's been a lot of, it's, it's funny, there's been a, some research since there have been some new tools, things like um, spin resonance and all these other t- methods they can use to study oxygenation, uh, oxidation, excuse me, of um, beer and things like that. And they've, for years, it was thought that, you know, some of the, the, the roasted malts and all these things were adding phenols that were protecting the beer from oxidation. Well, as it turns out, it was just, you couldn't taste it. You know, the beer was so strong and so flavorful, you just couldn't taste the oxidation. They're, they're aging and staling just as quickly as a light lager would, but you just don't taste it. So in the same kind of thing with these beers, they, they, stand, up to oxi- they stand up to oxidation a lot better than, uh, than, than lighter beers would. Um, but people are playing with some lighter beers. We've, done, we've aged uh, some triple in a bourbon barrel before and things like that, things that'd be a little bit more susceptible to that and not really picked it up. So, But on the whole, yeah, we, we, we do up the oxidation because it's such a high uh, gravity. There's a lot of osmotic pressure, and we want to get as much yeast growth as possible, and we really over-pitch it. So, you know, two, three, you know, basically at least two million cells per, milli, you know, per milliliter. So we just, ton of, you throw a lot of yeast at it because it's it's it doesn't like it. It's really, it's an unhappy environment for yeast at that point, so... 
<laughs> yes. Yeah. Ideally, yeah, ideally. It's, you know, we've had stuck fermentations before, and we've had to add additional. And at that point, we'll actually use some freshly fermenting wort to basically croison it to get it down at that point. But it's been, if we get it enough yeast in quickly, and uh, it tends to do fine. So, and ferments, it probably takes maybe, eh, maybe two weeks at the, out, at the outside to go all the way. So, um, and it's an American ale, it's American ale strain. It's a commercially available, you know, nothing, nothing proprietary, but it's a good, good, strong strain. So, and because mostly with these beers, we're looking for we're looking for these beers. We're looking for a lot of the other attributes. We're not looking for a yeast um, attribute, so we're, it's fairly neutral American strain. So, we had a question. In line, hmm? yeah, just a just a yeah, centered stone in line. So, and uh, yeah. So the original brewery is a fifteen barrel brew house, and then we and we have a, a fifteen barrel tanks and sixty barrel tanks. Yeah. So, yeah, the stronger beers we do in the 60-barrel tanks so that we can use this uh, Glottwasser, uh, uh, the lower-gravity wort, in order to, to mash in those next batches. Yep. All right. And the production facility, we've got a 30-barrel system there. So. All right. Well, thanks very much. If there's any questions, you know. So feel free to fill your glasses, you know. Don't waste the beer. <laughs> awesome. Give it up for Schlafly. <laughs> Mouth is dry. Thank you so much. Yeah, no, Thank you for listening to this recording from Savor 2013, brought to you by the Brewers Association and Craft Beer Radio. You can find the rest of the salons from Savor 2013, as well as all the salons from previous years at craftbeerradio.com slash savor or on craftbeer.com. Craft Beer Radio is a weekly beer podcast that you can listen to on iTunes or from our website at craftbeerradio.com.